All right. Well, if you have a Bible this morning, if you would open it up to the book of Ecclesiastes, we started a, a new series last week uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes. And um, if you missed that and the intro to that, and we kind of did the intro work on the book, um, that's available online. And this morning we'll be diving into chapter two and kind of doing big chunks most of the time uh, as we go through this book. And this morning we're going to tackle all of the chapter. You know, one of the most famous rock songs of the last 50 years, 60 years, however long it's been, is the Rolling Stones, I Can't Get No Satisfaction, right? I try, and I try, and I try, and I think there's one more try in there, and I try, I can't get no satisfaction. And I'm not the first to say this, but that is the theme of Ecclesiastes chapter 2, is a man trying and trying and trying to find satisfaction, to find contentment, to find Shalom, peace, happiness, wholeness, all those things, and not being able to find it. And it's unfortunate, you know, that in our culture, as we look out at kind of our, what I call our cultural heroes, the artists, the musicians, the celebrities, um, many of those people aren't happy, right? They're no happier than, than some of the people in this room are, and some of the people we know are, and that many people that fill our churches are, and that you work with are. They have fame, they have fortune, they have ultimate just crazy freedom, right, to go and do as they want to do. And it seems just like with the everyday Joes of this world, many of them struggle with a search for for more. Like there's like an emptiness or an avoid there. We read of people dying of accidental drug overdoses. We are committing suicide. We read of people being admitted to drug and alcohol rehab and things like that. Same struggles we see just right here in our own city. We see these many, many, not all of course, but we read about it because it's in the news and it's because, because they're famous. We hear about it more. These celebrities. My point is this. No matter how Little money, or no matter how much money, or how much fame, or little fame, or how much power, or little power, whatever pleasures you have or don't have, true and lasting satisfaction, a sense of meaning, a sense of purpose, and ultimate contentment, something that can bear the weight of death, something that can bear the weight of eternity, cannot be found in those things. It can't be found in money. It can't be found in power. It can't be found... And the pleasures of this world. However, satisfaction, meaning, contentment, purpose of life, all that sense of peace can be found. But it can't be found where it was never meant to be found. And that's kind of our point this morning. Many times, as we're going to see this morning, we go and we begin to, to look for things in certain things that they were never meant to give. Right? The chair's meant to hold me up, right? I can't really look for a lot of other things outside of the chair this morning other than for it to hold me up. And so things have a purpose. And even the good things that God blesses us with or has given us on this earth or the neutral things or whatever, even those things have a purpose. And when you try to push them outside of their purpose, you're going to be very frustrated in life. So how do you find satisfaction? Well, this morning as we're going to walk through Ecclesiastes chapter 2, we're going to see this author who may very well, as we talked last week, have been Solomon, and many believe may have not have been Solomon, but someone wanted us thinking about Solomon. But as we walk through this, we're going to see him seeking satisfaction. And then at the end of the chapter, we're going to see a sense of finding satisfaction. So rather than just read the chapter once, let's just read it in, in little bits and kind of talk about it as we go. It'll be on the screen if you don't have a Bible. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Look there in verse 1. I said in my heart, Come now, and I will test you with pleasure. 
Enjoy yourself, but behold, this also is vanity. There's that word, Havel. The, the Hebrew word that we talked about last week that can mean lots of different things. Meaninglessness, purposelessness, fleeting, frustrating, absurd, uh, incomprehensible, depending on the context, right? And he throws that word in here, here, and he says, you know, I, I told my heart, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go on a little test journey here. Uh, I'm gonna test things out, and I'm gonna test my heart with pleasure, or joy, or jubilation, and I said to my heart, enjoy yourself, but he says this is vanity. He's saying, even this cannot help me make sense of this fleeting life. That word pleasure there, what he says, that he, we, we see a recurrence as we go through this chapter. You're going to see a recurrence of some words. And our translations sometimes are translated different, but it's the same Hebrew word. And that's interesting to me and a key to understanding the point of the text. The Hebrew word there translated pleasure, it means joy or jubilation. And so sometimes when we think of pleasure, we think forbidden. Because we've kind of, we've, we've taken that word and we've dirtied it up in our culture. And it's not a dirty thing. You were created for pleasure and for joy. And he says, this joy, this jubilation, he goes looking for it. And he goes looking for it in this pleasure. He goes looking for it in, and we're going to see some different things here in just a moment, but the idea is he's going to see, can I find true contentment in these things? Can I find the meaning of life? Can I make sense of all the vanity that he talked about in chapter 1? All the emptiness, all the fleetingness, all the meaninglessness, can I make sense of it with pleasure, with joy and jubilation and just simply trying to enjoy life? But he's going to look and seek for in pleasure what pleasure was never meant to give him. He's seeking from these things what they're not meant to give. And he goes seeking. The first thing we see here in verse 2 is in 3 is he goes seeking through experiencing. Look at verse 2. A set of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. So he says, I tried to experience laughter and pleasure and enjoyment. You know, laughter can be good medicine, Proverbs tells us, or it can be foolish in some situations in the Bible. What it can't do is give meaning to life. Right? Somebody tells a good joke and you laugh. Okay, that's good. Right? The joy of the Lord is good. Cynically kind of laughing your way through life in the dark times is just mad. Some believe here he's speaking to a cynical outlook on life. The idea of taking, not taking seriously the things of this world. But I think the bigger scheme here is to understand that laughter is a neutral thing. Right? Depending on the context. And here, he's trying to get meaning out of laughter. He's trying to get purpose out of laughter. He's, he's trying to see if it can bear the weight of death, bear the weight of eternity, make sense of life, help him grasp the wind. Laughter can't do that. Pleasure, he says, can't do that. Enjoyment can't do that. He goes on to wine. His heart was still guiding himself, he says, with wisdom as he came to wine. That means he wasn't getting drunk. He's trying his best to see if he can find true and lasting satisfaction here. Remember, he's a king. He would have had the best vineyards with the best wine of his day, but he's discovering wine is simply this. It's wine. <laughs> it can't be more than what it is. It can't bring him lasting contentment. He's seeking to cheer his body. He says to lay hold on folly, to see what is good. He's willing to walk a fine line, but he's experiencing things to see if he can make sense of life in the experiences of this life. And so he tries laughter, he tries pleasure, he tries wine, and none of this can do 
What what we're going to see only one thing, one person can do. He goes, verse 4, he starts talking about through accomplishing. As he's winding down here there in verse 3, before he transitioned to verse 4, notice what he says there. He said, I was looking for good for the children, what might seem what was good for the children of men to do under heaven during the few days of their life. And that kind of helps you understand. Life is fleeting, life is short, so how do I make sense of it? How do I make sense of it? How, how, how do I grasp it? How do I, how do I lasso it? How do I tie it down and get my hands around life and make sense of life and give purpose to life? Not in laughter. <laughs> not in pleasure. Not in wine. And here he says, not through accomplishing things. Look at verse 4. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. Now, who's he doing all this for? Notice, I made great works. He's accomplishing things here. He's going out, he's building, and he's he's spending, and he's making these incredible things to look at and enjoy. He's accomplishing great feats that all could look around and see and go, wow! Right? If it's Solomon, you look at Solomon, you think about the temple and the years that it took to build that, his home. I mean, just elaborate things. Why is he doing this? Well, look at verse 4, 5, and 6. Verse 4, for myself. Verse 5, I made myself. Verse 6, I made myself. This is all a self-indulgent pursuit. Satisfaction for himself by doing things for himself. Accomplishing things for himself. You know, there are a lot of things we seek to build and to do. And we like to say we're doing it for our family, our spouse, our kids, our friends, our church, our whatever. But sometimes it's for Myself. He's being honest. He did it for himself. Right? Like, hey, I put a pool in. Was it for you kids? It's for me. Right? I built it for myself. Why? To water my giant trees. Right? I mean, it's just very self-indulgent. Derek Kidner states that it's like he's building a secular garden of Eden, but with no forbidden fruit. And isn't that human nature? Ever since the fall, isn't that what we've been doing? seeking to build our own little garden of Eden, find our own perfection, find our own peace, find our own pleasure, find our own satisfaction with no forbidden fruit where nothing's forbidden, where we can kind of live life however it is we want to live it. At the end of the day, is it what that what our culture is pursuing right now? A place where everything's great and there's nothing forbidden? Right? You know, it's human nature to build. It's just human nature. God put man in the garden and He said, go cultivate the ground. It's in our DNA to build. We build companies. We build wealth. We build networks. We build legacies. We build reputations. We build houses. We we build. He is building for himself, but he's not finding in his building or in his planting what he's looking for. Because houses fall down and vineyards dry up and die and parks get overgrown and trees get turned into paper nowadays. Right? In the end, temporary accomplishments can't bring lasting satisfaction. The question becomes, why are we building? Why are we achieving? Why are we accomplishing? Why are we doing the things we are doing? Is our identity, our meaning, our worth in these things? Are we doing these things for us? Are we seeking glory or giving glory? Glory's tied to it somewhere. And here he's seeking it in himself. Verse 7, he moves on from accomplishing. Now he begins to seek through acquiring. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who many who had been before me in Jerusalem. 
also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. Because I had slaves and herds and flocks and silver and gold and other peoples and treasure. What's that about? That's massive wealth and power that he's exhibiting there in his day. He had his own personal singers, right? I'm bored. I need somebody to sing to me. Call Joe, right? Here comes Joe. I mean, it's like that's that's his life. You say, that's an absurd amount of wealth. And I can't relate to that. Really? Go home, pick up the remote and turn on the TV. you got a bunch of singers in the box, right? Actors and everything else. Our lives look a lot more like his than we want to think they do. It's just a different day. And he had an, obviously an absurd amount of wealth. He could have whatever he wanted to, but he's just acquiring and acquiring. And he said, what if I have all this stuff? He even says concubines. There is a hard word in the Hebrew that really is very difficult to translate. And so they basically settled on concubines. But the idea is he's pointing to something sexual. You know, Solomon was known for having 700 wives and 300 concubines. Girlfriends, right? Whatever. He didn't deprive himself of anything or anyone he wanted. He's saying, this king. In this passage, the false gods of our own culture are on full display. Money, power, sex. It's all right there in verses 7 and 8. You say, where's the power? Slaves. Money. Treasure. Where's the power? Oh, kings and provinces treasure. That's power and money, right? He added everything that our culture and that, that our sinful nature drives after. He says, I had all these things. You know, people acquire because they want security, status, freedom to be able to go and to do and whatever. And some people seek life in what they do and some people seek life in what they have. Right, The one that's achieving and accomplishing, we talked about earlier, that's the person that what I do defines me and that's where I find life and happiness and contentment. And the other person, what I have, right? Sometimes it's all connected and muddied together. But the point is, there's no life in these things. People crave the security of saved up cash, the status of a certain kind of home or car, the freedom of being able to do anything we want to do. To be able to, at the drop of a hat, to just take off and go. So catch this scene. This guy has people at his beck and call that have to obey him. He has the world's biggest farm or zoo. He's got precious metals more than anybody else. He's even got the treasure of other kings and provinces. On top of all the money and the power, all these things, he's got these personal entertainers, any women he wants, and he looks at it and he cries, Vanity. It's empty, it's fleeting, it can't make sense of things, it's passing away and it can't give me hope, it can't give me meaning. And he begins to sum up this pleasure pursuit in verse 9. So, I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had experienced in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. 
He reached the pinnacle of the world, so to speak. Right? I am the greatest. I surpassed all who was before me in Jerusalem. In his little circle, right? His little world. He was number one. He was the top guy. He was the guy when he walked in the room, everybody was looking at him, wanting to know what his move was going to be. He was the greatest. And it's like he said, I climbed the mountain, I got to the top, and realized I looked over and all there was was a cliff. Empty. Verse 10, this guy indulged in everything he wanted. He never said no to himself. He says, I found pleasure in all my toil though. He enjoyed building those houses. Right? He enjoyed building that stuff. He enjoyed, the enjoyment was the reward, he's saying, of all this. And then verse 11, he says, while he enjoyed the moment, the moment was fleeting. While he enjoyed accomplishing and acquiring, they could not bring lasting happiness. It couldn't bring satisfaction. It couldn't bring contentment to his life. And we tend to think of people coming to the end of themselves when they hit the bottom, right? At some point, the bottom's going to fall out and they're in rehab. At some point, the bottom's going to fall out and the marriage is on the rocks. At some point, the bottom's going to fall out and, and man, they're, the game they've been playing gets blown up. He hits bottom on top. Do you see that? He's not crying out vanity from the falling off the cliff. He's crying out vanity from the precipice, from the peak, from the tip top of everything our culture, everything our human nature, our sinful nature says is good. And he says, I'm not mourning what I've lost. I'm mourning the fact that having everything, I realize I have nothing. That's what's going on here. You know, some of you think if I could just get that promotion. If I just had this much money. Not a lot more, just this much. If I had this this much savings and I could just get my kids in this school, if I could just be this good of a mom or a dad and this didn't happen and this didn't happen, if I just had more freedom, more security, more status, then I'd be truly happy. I'd be truly content. And life, would, for all intents and purposes, other than some tragedies, would be perfect. And you're chasing the wind. That's what Solomon's saying. He's saying, man, contentment and satisfaction will not be found there. If you're, that's what you're looking for to give you peace and to give you happiness, you're never going to find it. You're never going to find it. And here's the problem. As we've said already, he's looking for the wrong thing out of these things. Experiences, accomplishments, things you acquire have a purpose, but that purpose is not to bring you ultimate fulfillment and to define your life. He's trying to get more from this stuff than this stuff has to offer. Due to fallen nature, people go looking for things in the wrong places. Trying to get something from experience and accomplishments and acquirements that they're never meant to give. That they're incapable of ultimately giving. You know, last week, Christy and the kids went uh, blueberry picking. I've never been blueberry picking, but they went blueberry picking. And Cannon loves blueberries. He's part blueberry, I think, at this point. And I've never seen so. He's probably got the strongest heart in the world, but because I, mean, I think they're supposed to be good, right? And so for that, and so he just loves blueberries, loves blueberries, loves blueberries. And um, and so he he loved this particular place I heard because I didn't get to go, but because they um, they let you eat right off the bush. So as you're picking, then you're going to have to pay for whatever you gather, whatever you can eat. That's just that's just you know what you get for walking through the whatever through the through the blueberry patch. Is it a patch? Is it a vineyard? I don't know what they call it. But anyway, from walking through there, right? But he also loves strawberries. He loves strawberries. He could eat his weight in strawberries as well. He might be part strawberry as well. And he loves both those things, and he'd probably love to go looking for any of those things, and he'd love to sit any of those things all day. But here's, and I love blueberries, and I love strawberries, but here's something I've come to know. This is gonna, might be come as a shock to you. You can't get a strawberry out of a blueberry. And you can't go looking on a, a blueberry bush and pick a strawberry. 
And you can't get a blueberry out of a strawberry. There's some other things that you might be surprised to find out. You can't get apple juice from orange juice. And you can't get orange juice from apple juice. And unless you're Jesus, you can't turn water into wine. Alright? And so, you just can't. There's this, there's principles, right? There's just certain things. They're not meant for these things. And he is saying, you're going and you're looking and you're searching and you're digging. And what the problem is, the reason I'm so, he's going to say, the reason I'm so frustrated, the reason I'm getting to this point is because I'm looking in these things for what they were never created or intended to give me. They're not meant to give me ultimate contentment, satisfaction, and meaning. So I'm never going to get that from them. You say, I'm not like this guy. I can't relate to some king from thousands of years ago. Do you ever find yourself trying to get more from things, more from experiences, more from people than what they're meant to offer, really? Sure you do. Beware, thrill seeker. The thrill can only give you the thrill. Beware, high achiever. That's great. They can only give you what it offers to give you. The ladder climber, the big spender, or the big saver. Beware, People, right? Pleasures of this life become, beware that they don't become our gods, our idols, the things we look to for meaning and purpose and for validity. So he seeks in pleasure, so he goes out experiencing and accomplishing, and he goes about accommodating and acquiring, and then he turns to wisdom in verse 12. He's already been there. He's already talked about that last week, but he comes back to it in verse 12 through 17. Look at verses 12 through 14. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly, for what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Let's stop right there. So he turns to consider wisdom, madness, and folly. As he's spoken of earlier. What's the best way to live? He says it's wisdom. It's, it's hands down. He, he's not going to say that there's no good in, in, the, in, in many of these things. He's not saying there's no good in wisdom. He's saying, duh, it's, it's the difference in light and darkness. It's the difference in walking in wisdom and walking in foolishness or folly. It doesn't, it doesn't take a lot to figure out that wise living's better than unwise living. We went to Aquatica the other day. I love Aquatica. Don't like the lines sometimes, but I like Aquatica. You know Aquatica? It's a SeaWorld water slide place, and, um, and the kids just love that place. And they've got the little water slides for the kids, and the slides that I'll go on, the slides I won't go on. They've got all that stuff. And everybody just walks around there. I, I wear flip-flops unless I'm in the water. But everybody else, a lot of these people barefoot. I'm just like, mm, you know. But... I don't know. So everybody's walking around, you know, barefoot, whatever, you know, and and getting in and out of the water. Thousands of people coming in and out of there. And I don't have to go online and Google this to know I don't need to drink the water when I'm in Aquatica. No. No. I don't need to do that, right? Or in any swimming pool or anything. But I don't need. I don't need to do that. I don't need to know that there's a there's a wise way and an unwise way to go down the water slides. Right? The difference is light and darkness. He's saying you're, you're simplifying. He's saying this is really simple. Well, he said I'm not saying that there's not one that's better than the other. So I want you to hear that. He said I'm not saying wise living is not better than foolish living. That's not the point. It's light and dark. It's common sense. But verse 15. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me, the wise person, also. Why then have I been so very wise? I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life 
because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What's he saying? He's saying at the end of the day, yes, this way of living is better than this way of living, and both die. True meaning, lasting purpose, and satisfaction still can't be found here because at the end, it can't conquer death. Death is the great equalizer. One person can live like a fool and they may die young or they may die old. And a wise person may live decades longer or decades shorter, but in the end, they both died is kind of his point. And as we spoke last week, they both ultimately, one day, to some degree, are forgotten. When you try to get out of this life what it can't give you in itself, in the end, you're going to hate life. Now, he's not saying I hate life in the sense of like I want to die. He's not, it's not ultimate despair. He's saying I'm fed up. I'm miserable. I'm miserable. He's what he's saying. I'm fed up with this. Living wisely is good, but it can't make you avoid death. The author already expressed his frustration in verses 16 and 17 that even with, in chapter 1, that even with his great wisdom and knowledge, he could not solve every problem. Wisdom has limits, is what he's saying. It has limits. It has a purpose and an intention, but even knowledge and, and acumen and intellectual ability, it has limits, and it, this is frustrating him. So if you're a health nut today, right? you can read up on the human body and you can count the calories and you can exercise every day and there is wisdom in living and eating healthy, but you're going to die. <laughs> I'm going to die. We're going to die. There's not ultimate... Ultimate, lasting satisfaction can't be found there. If you're an intellectual today, and you fill your mind trying to master many subjects, and you know, in our culture, we tend to think education can fix anything, and it can solve a lot of things, but it can't solve everything. It's a chasing after the wind. Caution livers. What do you mean? You say, I live with absolute cost. No debt. Big savings. I've got insurance. I've got insurance for my insurance. Right? Which these days you about have to, right? I don't just go out and buy a car. I study Consumer Report. I get on Kelly's Blue Book. I go through all the stuff. I buy the best deal, the safest car, all that. I'm a planner. I plan everything. If it ain't on the calendar, it ain't real. You know, I'm very... That's great. There's wisdom in that. But you're going to die and you can't plan that. Meaning and lasting satisfaction can't be found. That's what he's driving at here. Well, he goes for another search. Verse 18, he begins to seek and work. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. At this point, he says, I hate, I hate, not only do I hate life, I hate toil. I hate the work. In verse chapter 2, he says, earlier he says, toil brought him joy. And even though the self-indulgent pleasures did not bring him satisfaction and meaning, he at least enjoyed the work, he said. However, now he says, I hated the toil. Why? He says, because I had to, everything I acquired with my toil, the money I worked for, all the stuff I built up, I gotta leave it to somebody. And he might be a moron. That's what he said. I don't know what they're gonna do with it. We call this inheritance. <laughs> Ever inherited something? That's what he's talking about. You didn't work for it. Right? That's what he's talking about. I worked for it, 
But I'm going to die, and no matter how much I accumulate, even if I spend it all, and all I've got is an estate with houses and cars. It's going somewhere, and they might live very foolishly with it. A Wall Street Journal article from back in March of 2013 discussed how badly Americans typically blow through inheritance money. Warning, this can be depressing. The article stated that two-thirds of baby boomers would inherit in their lifetime about $7.6 trillion would be passed along. But the article said studies have shown that inheritance money tends to get spent rather quickly. 70% of it doesn't get past the second generation. And 90% not past the third. Now some of that's due to it being spread over multiple family members and things like that, but much of it's due to just wastefulness or people inheriting large sums of money and they've never had large sums of money and they don't know how to wisely use large sums of money. Some of that's the reason sometimes. And Solomon or whomever, he gets this. He says, you know, you work and you earn and in the end what happens to it? He's not saying you shouldn't leave things to people. He's not saying that. That's not his point. But his point is, man, at the end of the day, if you try to be defined by your work and you try to be defined by your earnings and you try to be defined by your toil, at the end of the day, it's very purposeless because you can't take it with you. And the person after you may use it wisely or they may not. It's all going to burn up in the end. Verse 22. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Workaholic confession, right? If you can't keep it, what do you really have? That's the question he's asking. He says, you, you, you work and life is hard and filled with sorrow and you wear yourself out and even at night your heart does not rest. You're laying in bed, you're thinking about work the next day, right? That's the, in this case, he's talking about kind of a, a workaholic kind of atmosphere. You know, work's good and it's a blessing actually. And enjoying your work is great. But work's a horrible God. You can't find ultimate meaning and ultimate purpose in it. Work for the sake of work without tying it to some greater purpose becomes something to dread. Instead of enjoy. Your work, you work, you earn, you die, and someone else spends it. You save and save and get a nice nest egg, and somebody buys a boat. Right? So here's a man that is in search of satisfaction and meeting, and he's looked in all of the self-indulgent pleasures, basic wisdom, good and hard work, and he's found it all wanting. And he says, in verse 24, it turns. God enters the picture and He tells us how to find satisfaction, I believe. Verse 24 and 25. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from Him, apart from God, who can eat, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? See, He gives us clue here, the clues here to find true satisfaction. It's found in the giver, not in the gift. Let the gifts be the gifts. And let God be God. Treat God as God. Treat gifts as gifts. He keeps it real simple. A fulfilling life, he's saying, is not complicated. There's nothing better than to should eat and drink and find enjoyment in your toil. And he's saying, he says, look, he says, this is from the hand of God that you would do this. See, enjoyment is a generous gift from a sovereign God. This is from the hand of God. That's a, he's pointing to the sovereignty of God. He's already pointed to the sovereignty of God over the fall. He's already said, right, that, that we've been given an unhappy business, but now he looks at the good things in life and the blessings in life, and he says that's from the hand of God. God's sovereign. But he also says, he's saying God is generous because apart from Him, who can eat or who can even have enjoyment? 
Do you realize the only reason you can enjoy anything is because God created joy and gave you the capacity for joy? God created enjoyment. He created pleasure. And when God created the world, what did He do? He created it and He would look at something and He would say, it is good. What's He doing? He's enjoying His creation. He's taking pleasure in His creation. God is not a cosmic killjoy. He's not some mean old guy sitting up in a rocking chair in heaven really disappointed in you today. You know? They're sitting up there just, you know, looking for an opportunity to get you, hoping you don't have too much fun. <laughs> hoping you don't enjoy life. Sometimes people look at God that way. You know? He's our Father, right? He's our Heavenly Father. And sometimes, Depending on what your experience was like with your father, that can be good, that can be bad. Sometimes that muddies the waters for people because they think, Father? <laughs> Maybe you had a unhappy father. Maybe you had an angry father. Maybe you had a judgmental father. Maybe you had a father with a real bad temper. And so you begin to tie those things together. But he's a good father. He's a good father. And that means, yeah, he, he's a disciplinarian and he's a provider and he's, he, he, he's a, he's, He's a place that's safe and He's secure. He's all those things. But also think about the dad rolling around on the floor with his little kid. You know? There should be reflections, dads, of, of we should reflect God to our children. And we don't just do that by disciplining them and providing for them and giving them a, a, a holy lifestyle to, to pattern after. Enjoy them. Experience joy with them. Have fun with them. God is not a killjoy. He is a good Father. And so when you think of God, don't just think of some distant figure in the sky that's probably disappointed with you today. Think of the God who created everything and said, it is good. And that when we fell and we went, ran and we, we turned our backs on Him, He came after us. Because He loves us. That's the kind of God He is. Enjoyment is a generous gift from a sovereign God. And you can't enjoy anything apart, ultimately, lastingly, from Him. The fact that you enjoy anything is a gift from Him. But the falls warped us. That's what we see throughout Ecclesiastes. We take a good thing like enjoyment and we go looking for it without God. Or we take gifts God gives us to enjoy and we look for more in them than they're meant to ever give us. And this offends God. And it grieves God. And it is the ultimately right at the very heart of sin that brings the judgment and the wrath of God. Because He is a holy Father. Verse 26, For the one who pleases Him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, He has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after when? At the beginning of chapter 2, verse 1, I want you to connect the dots here with some of the Hebrew words here. I just want you to catch this. The preacher, as he calls himself, said to his heart in verse 1 that we read, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. We read that phrase earlier. That word for enjoy, the Hebrew word, is the same Hebrew word translated enjoyment in verses 24 and 25. So he tells his heart to enjoy yourself. And at the end of the chapter, he said, enjoyment is ultimately a gift from God. I can't give it to myself except for the fact that God has already given me, given it to me and given me the capacity for it. Then in verse 
26, he says that to the one who pleases God, the one who pleases Him, same word, God has given wisdom, knowledge, and joy. And that word joy is the word translated pleasure in verse 1. When he says, I'm going to go out looking for pleasure. Are you seeing the difference here? At the beginning of the chapter, he's looking for all these things and there's no mention of God. And he gets to the end of the chapter and he's saying, all this is connected to God. And ultimately, lasting pleasure and lasting joy, all these things, ultimately, they're found in Him. They're connected to Him. See, we're seeing here that satisfaction in life begins with God. When you make gifts more than gifts, when you try to get out of enjoyment what can only be found in God, and when you fail to connect enjoyment or work or any of these things to God, you will in the end not find lasting satisfaction. Rather than running from God to find enjoyment, we should pause and and thank God for the capacity of joy and the gifts He's given us to enjoy and realize life is not ultimately about the gifts, but about the giver. And the gifts are meant to drive our hearts to the giver, not to the gift. There's two basic ways to live He lays out here at the end of the chapter. Living to please and enjoy God or living to please and enjoy yourself. He set out in verse 1 to enjoy himself, he says, and built lots of things for himself. Self-indulgent, self-centered pursuit. But here he says, the one who pleases God, same word for when he went out to enjoy himself. The same word as in verse 1. He finds wisdom, knowledge, and joy. See, either, either God or you has top billing in your life this morning. Not both. And God's not happy with being a co-pilot or a co-star of your life. The person who lives to please themselves, who makes God a co-star, who assigns Him to secondary status or no status at all, the person who lives to please themselves, the sinner He calls them here, the person still in and defined by their sin, He gathers and collects only to give to the one who pleases God. This is the life of the sinner, He says. It's ultimate vanity. Lasting fulfillment, true meaning, is only found in Him, in God. And those that remain in their sin and continue to pursue these things on their own ultimately never find lasting satisfaction. Oh, you might have a happy life. But it's going to end. And as He's going to tell us later on in chapter 12, judgment is coming. So the bottom line takeaway this morning is that lasting satisfaction and meaning begins with properly relating to God. That means you need to be reconciled to a right relationship with God. If there's never been that time in your life where you've been reconciled to God and you've went from enemy to friend and family member, where you've went from unbeliever to believer, where you've went from dead in your sin to born again, where you went from old life to new life, from darkness to light, if that experience being a born again has never happened to you, you need to be reconciled to a right relationship with God this morning. It starts there. But also, we need to learn that we need to treat gifts as gifts and treat God as God. We, need to, we steward gifts and we worship God and we don't get those things backwards. And we need to live as though God's on the throne this morning. Not as though we are on the throne this morning. Let me ask you, who do you live to please? Who's at the center of your life if you got really honest right now? It might not even be you, but it might not be God either. 
We're born broken and sinful in need of reconciling to God. And it's why people... the reason That's the reason that people are workaholics. It's the reason that people are hedonistic. It's the reason that people are, are think they're too smart sometimes to be Christians. It's why you think you can find ultimate meaning in being a mom or being a dad or being a this or being a that. Because you're broken. And your need of reconciliation with God where true meaning and true purpose and true life is found by the One who designed and created you. The good news of the Bible is that there is a better son of David. Remember, that's how he introduced himself to us in chapter 1. Son of David. There's a better son of David who went on a different search. This son of David went on a search for meaning and purpose and happiness and there is another son of David who came not to search for meaning and happiness, but he came to search for you. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came not to please Himself, but as Jesus said, but to serve, not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. The Lord Jesus, God's ultimate gift, His very best, and He's the only one who gives true and lasting satisfaction. And He came and He perfectly pleased God, where you and I can't. And... We're all in need of the one who perfectly pleased God, the standard bearer, the one who kept God's law, Jesus. And, you know, today I live and try to please God, not because I think in and of myself I can please God. I do that because Christ has already pleased God on my behalf. And, and, and my heart has been changed. And I want to please God, not so that somehow I can sneak into heaven at the end, but because heaven's been purchased. <laughs> and I live, I live on a different side of reality now. It changes everything. Do you know God through that Christ this morning, through the ultimate Son of David, the, the ultimate, the King, not just of Jerusalem, the King of kings who came and laid down His life for you? Do you know God through Him? Have you turned from your sin and pursuing life and meaning and purpose and other things instead of in God? Have you turned from your sin and embraced Christ as Lord and as Savior? Have you put your faith in the One who died in your place and who rose from the dead this morning? Believer, Christian, you've been reconciled to God, so you are supposed to pursue Him now, not His gifts. We enjoy His gifts, but they drive us to worship Him. And if they don't do that, we're abusing them. Let me ask you, are you living life oriented around God this morning? Or have you started seeking satisfaction outside of God? You say a Christian would never do that. Jeremiah 2.13 God rebukes His people in the Old Testament for their idolatry. And this is what He says. He says, For My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken Me, the fountain of living waters, the place of satisfaction and where thirst is quenched, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. God's people did it in the Old Testament. Sometimes God's people do it in the New Testament. And sometimes our broken cisterns, our wells that we go and dig are good gifts from God that we go digging for living water in. And that is a sin to be repented of. Maybe you need to repent for treating your job as more than a job. Treating money as more than money. Treating pleasure as more than pleasure. And not just treating them as gifts. Not just stewarding. In the, and maybe you need to repent of living practically like you're disconnected from God even though realistically you are through Christ. Maybe today you need to recommit to using all of God's gifts for His glory. 
You know, 1 Corinthians 10.31, the Apostle Paul says, whether you eat or whether you drink, whatever you do, whatever you do, whether you go to work, whether you go have fun, whether you're on vacation or whether you're at home, whether you're at church or whether you're in the parking lot or whatever you're doing, do all to the glory of God. There is not anything over your life that Jesus doesn't stake His claim on and says it's to be done for my glory. So work and enjoy work as a gift from God. Enjoy God's gifts as a gift from God. And do it for His glory. Enjoy God's blessings as gifts meant to be stewarded for His glory. Meant to drive you to worship. Meant to drive you to thank Him. Meant to drive you to Him. Not as things that are meant to give you more than they were ever really meant intended to give you.